Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's Audio Bouquet Channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa finally announces his much-anticipated reconfigured executive and the United States Special Counsel Robert Mueller confirms his report's main findings on Russian interference in the 2016 election. In sports news, African football president says he's excited about the upcoming AFCON. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Musa. The South African Communist Party has welcomed the appointment of the new executive by President Cyril Ramaphosa last night. The South African president has dropped some of the ministers that were red flagged by the ruling ANC's Integrity Commission, including Batebile Lamini, Melusi Gigaba and Nomvula Mokonyane, among others. The SACP's first general secretary, Solima Pahila, says the team is fit for purpose. As the SACP, we welcome uh, the announcement of Cabinet. We think it's a very good Team South Africa that will deliver on the mandate of the alliance uh, led by the ANC with regard uh, to election manifesto, as well as to make sure that uh, there's been a a wider consideration, consultations, as well as bringing in uh, the energy of young people as well. And we have uh, reduced cabinet, and I think that Monday the president carried it out uh, quite well. And we appreciate that, and we are looking forward to a successful implementation of our program. President Ramaphosa announced a new reduced cabinet with the number of ministers declining from 36 to 28 and half of the ministers are women. President Ramaphosa says it's the first time in South Africa that half the ministers are women. Praveen Godan retains his post as public enterprise minister despite the public protector making findings against him. David Mabuza stays on as deputy president. Ramaphosa says competence, continuity, regional diversity and gender were among the considerations when selecting his executive. He says the performance of all ministers will be monitored. Their performance individually and collectively will be closely monitored against specific outcomes. I will be signing performance agreements with each and every one of the ministers and deputy ministers which will be evaluated regularly against clearly stated targets and clearly stated performance outcomes. And where implementation is unsatisfactory, action will be taken. 
The Sudanese Professionals Association and Umbrella Group that has been spearheading protests against the country's military council has condemned soldiers for their role in deadly clashes in Khartoum. One woman was killed and several people were injured in the violence along the capital's Nile Avenue. A statement issued by the Sudanese Professionals Association on Twitter criticized the reckless and irresponsible actions by soldiers and urged the army to ensure the safety and security of all citizens. The statement also urged the protesters to exercise restraint as they took part in the second day of a two-day public strike on Wednesday. Politicians in Israel have voted to dissolve parliament and hold a snap election after Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu failed to form a coalition. The poll scheduled for September will be the second in six months. Netanyahu's Lukert party gained seats in last month's vote, but not enough to govern alone. The BBC's Tom Bateman reports that there's little to suggest the political views of Israelis has shifted since last month's election. The chances are, it seems, that they will once again choose to vote for a right-wing bloc in the Israeli parliament that has a greater number of seats. But the problem is they can't agree with each other in a way that they can form a coalition. But perhaps the dynamics will change. And the fact is, Mr Netanyahu, it, it seemed, could get 60 MPs. He needs 61 to form a majority in parliament. So if a few seats change here or there, maybe it will make all the difference for him. And finally, a growing number of prominent Democrats in the United States have called for impeachment proceedings against President Donald Trump. The calls come after Special Counsel Robert Mueller made his first public comments on his report on Russia's interference in the 2016 election. He confirmed his report's main findings and was explicit that he did not clear Trump of a wrongdoing. Democratic Speaker of the House of Representatives Nancy Pelosi has urged her colleagues to be cautious, but did not rule out the option of impeachment. Nothing is off the table, but we do want to make such a compelling case, such an ironclad case, that even the Republican Senate, which at the time seems to be not an objective jury, will be convinced of the path that we have to take as a country. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa has announced his much-anticipated reconfigured executive whose members will be forced to sign performance agreements. The new executive combines a number of portfolios, reducing the number of ministers from 36 in the previous administration to 28. The president said this is in line with directing the country's resources to where they are most needed and will assist in revitalizing the economy. 50% of the new appointees are women with a number of high-profile appointments of young people. Demo Mukobo has more. President Ramaphosa stressed that his new executive was a balancing act between experience, youth, gender and geographic spread. As expected, he trimmed his cabinet, bringing down ministries from 36 to 28. The reconfiguration that we've embarked on, these are some of its outcomes. Trade and industry is combined with economic development into being one ministry. 
higher education and training is combined with science and technology. Environmental affairs is combined with forestry and fisheries. Agriculture is combined with land reform and rural development. Mineral resources is combined with energy. Human settlements is combined with water and sanitation. Sports and recreation is combined with arts and culture. And he did not mince words when he spoke of what is to be expected from his ministers and their deputies. He said their performance will be important. People who I am appointing today must realize that the expectations of South African people have never been higher and they've never been greater than they are at the moment and that those people I will be appointing have a huge responsibility on their shoulders. Their performance will be closely monitored against specific outcomes. I will be signing performance agreements with each and every one of the ministers and deputy ministers which will be evaluated regularly against clearly stated targets and clearly stated performance outcomes. And where implementation is unsatisfactory, action will be taken. David Mabuza is now officially the country's deputy president and this ends weeks of speculation as to whether he would be Ramaphosa's second in command. ANC Women's League President Batabile Tlamini has been left out of the cabinet and is replaced by Maite Nguanamashaban as Minister of Women in the Presidency. Another no-show is the longest-serving Minister of Cabinet, Jeff Hadebe, who served under all presidents since 1994. Togo Titiza has re-emerged as the new Minister of Agriculture, Land Reform and Rural Development, a portfolio she is familiar with having served as Minister between 1999 and 2006. She will have two deputies, former Kosato Presidents Dumatlamin and Gabisi Squasha. And in line with ensuring women's empowerment, Ayanda Tlodlo has been placed at the helm of the country's security. She is now State Security Minister deputized by a former ANC spokesperson Zizi Kodwa. Another woman headed ministries include international relations led by Naledi Pando. Barbara Crisi has the environmental affairs while Dr. Ngosa Sanatlamini Zuma takes over the traditional affairs ministry. The president stated commitment to bringing in new blood as seen ANC NEC member Ronald Lamola, age 35, appointed justice minister. And Ramaphosa did not only confine himself to the ANC. In a surprise move, good party leader Patricia Dilil was appointed public works minister, something the ANC welcomed as a good move as party secretary general Is Mahashul explains. Cognize the potential capacity, capabilities of Patricia Delay. She's there and we just wanted to make sure that uh, as the ANC, we are not this arrogant organization. We do recognize other parties. It's unfortunate we, we can't accommodate all the parties which are in parliament, but we identified Patricia Delay as one of those people. In provinces, we'll definitely continue working with uh, other parties because we want to build a South Africa which is more united. Meanwhile, both alliance partners, Kosato and the SACP, who were consulted on the composition of the new executive, have since welcomed the president's team to parliament. The new members of the national executive for the sixth administration will be sworn in at the Sefako Makato presidential guest house later this morning. I am Debo Mokobo in Pretoria. Some of the political parties in South Africa as represented in Parliament have had mixed reaction on the cabinet announced by President Sil Ramaphosa. While they were happy about the reduced cabinet, they think the recycling of the same ministers will not provide the desired outcome of economic growth. Zaline Merrington has more. 
The DA leader, Musi Maimane, says the script sounds all too familiar to him with ministers who've served in previous administrations who did not yield results. What South Africa needs is a different plan. It needs a plan that will create work, that will make it easier. The cabinet may have reduced by a few ministers, but has added a whole lot of more deputy ministers. The executive remains still bloated, which will require it to be spent on VIP security. We've reshuffled portfolios and added different actors to them. What we should have been doing, rather, is focusing on the economic cluster to make it smaller. But the Freedom Front Plus leader, Peter Grunewald, says he thinks the stability in the economic cluster will inspire investor confidence. For instance, the Minister of Finance told Titum Bueni, if you look at the state-owned enterprises, uh, which is uh, Pravin Gordon, as well as Minister Patel for economic development, I think uh, those were good choices, and uh, I think it can uh, evoke some uh, confidence from potential investors in South Africa. So we welcome that. UDM MP Ngaba Kwankwa says the reduced cabinet is a welcome move. Well, certainly it did surprise us. Uh, we welcome the integration of the different departments. It's going to save the country a lot of resources. But it's also good that some of the ministries have been given, because of their size, uh, additional deputies. We think it's a mixed bag of experience and young people that have been put into strategic positions. For as long as they do what is right for the country and they put the interest of the country forward, we'll support them. The newly appointed ANC chief whip in parliament, Pemi Majodina, has lauded President Cyril Ramaphosa for the number of women he appointed in his cabinet. It says uh, he understands the issue of gender parity and that women are in the majority in South Africa and it's high time that we give recognition to that. We have women of stature, women of substance and when, when you empower a woman, we empower the nation. A member of the ACDP, Wayne Thring, highlighted the strengthening of the RAND as a positive point but the appointment of the Deputy President, David Mabuza, as a negative point of this cabinet. Uh, one of the negatives though, is the retaining of uh, the Deputy President David Mabusa. We believe that he has a cloud hanging over his head. Um, He has uh, a tainted uh, character. There are some numerous allegations against him. Uh, Those allegations still have to be really tested. It uh, it does not bode well uh, for the the country to have someone with a tainted uh, record. That report by Zaline Merrington. The Nigerian President Muhammadu Buhari has been sworn in for a second term following his election victory in February. One of the key issues of this year's elections was unemployment, which the President had promised to reduce when he was first elected in 2015. Four years on and the unemployment rate has almost tripled. So what went wrong? The BBC's Nigeria correspondent Mayeni Jones reports from the southern city of Port Harcourt. From the rooftop of a 19-storey building in central Port Harcourt, the capital of River State, I'm surrounded by economic activity. Within a mile of me, I can see the city's port, as well as a sugar processing plant and the central bank. But despite the fact that this is one of Nigeria's wealthiest states and a major oil producer, Rivers still has the country's highest unemployed population. My name is Alexander Victor Obara from Imo State. I've lived in Portacourt more or less 12 years now. I do building and construction. I do painting and decoration. Sometimes 
in one week, you might go one walk. And that one walk, the money will not be affordable. And on your family, how difficult is it, the fact that you don't have work, you're not making money? My mother is getting old, then my father is getting old. I am their responsibility to take good care of them. If I don't have money, they will die and leave me. I mean, Location Junction, a suburb of Port Harcourt in the Niger Delta. And I've come here because this is where a number of casual workers come every morning uh, looking for work. Uh, they're bricklayers, ironmongers, painters, decorators. They sit on a makeshift bench in front of a very busy traffic road, hoping that somebody will drive by and give them some work for the day. Many of them say they're frustrated, they have families to support, and they say that the situation has gotten much worse since the beginning of the year. I can't tell a lie. I have children going to school. No money to pay for school fees. Even this morning, no one asked me for money, transport. I don't have it. You know, this Nigeria is bribery and corruption. Since President Buhari took office in 2015, Nigeria's unemployment rate has soared. For young people, things are particularly bad. More than half are unemployed or underemployed. Desperate to find work, many turn to agriculture, the state's main employer. But even those who manage to get a place on one of the government's few training schemes have doubts about their ability to find work afterwards. Lucia Baka is from Imo State in southeastern Nigeria. She's a poultry farming student in Port Harcourt. Not being involved in any work, you know, it's hard because all of us went to school hoping that tomorrow we'll be somewhere working any money to make our family proud. You know, at the end of the day, you will not find anything. Find yourself staying at home, doing nothing. But Harcourt's struggle with unemployment is shared across the country. Despite President Buhari's re-election, voter turnout was low. Many are disaffected with his inability to provide adequate employment for Nigeria's booming population which will see many more young people searching for work. Professor Oke Onuchuku from the Portakot Business School says the key issue is the country's failure to diversify its economy. It's something that is a cumulative you know, effect because of the reliance of uh, Nigeria's economy on oil. You know, we rely just on oil. And even in the oil sector, there is no you know, value added because our refineries are not working. So you see, that kind of economy cannot grow and that cannot generate employment. The state government agrees the oil industry is to blame, but it's for different reasons. It is uh, clearly, for us, it's an emergency. Dr. Ipali Bobanigo is the deputy governor of River State. The activities of oil companies in the state, they have been polluting our rivers, our waters and our farmlands. And so the normal livelihood that our people, our community members, have been used to over the years, they no longer can go to the fish and get a livelihood. They cannot go to the farms and get the same produce they used to get before. But regardless of who they think is responsible, everyone agrees that this unemployment crisis is having dire consequences for the country. Professor Onuchuku again. One major you know, consequence of unemployment in Nigeria is high level of crime. You can hear... You know, young men are going into kidnapping just to survive because they are idle men. They are unemployed, but they must survive. They must eat in order to live. In the last two years, Nigeria's economy has only grown by 2%. But analysts say it would need to increase by at least 6% every year to reduce youth unemployment. With Nigerian cities already full beyond capacity, the government now faces a real struggle to contain a crisis which will only continue to grow.
That report by the BBC's Mayeni Jones. In his first public remarks since his appointment, United States Special Counsel Robert Mueller confirmed his report's main findings of Russian interference in the 2016 election but did not clear President Donald Trump of wrongdoing. On the question of obstruction of justice, Mueller said a sitting president could not be charged with a federal crime while still in office due to a policy of the Department of Justice which makes such a determination unconstitutional. But on the Russian collusion question with the Trump campaign, he reiterated that there was insufficient evidence to charge a broader conspiracy. Shown by Peace reports. Robert Mueller confirmed that Russia's military and intelligence launched a concerted attack on the U.S. political system during the 2016 presidential election to, among others, hack into the computers and networks of the Clinton campaign and steal private information later released through WikiLeaks, a matter he believes deserves the attention of every American. The second volume of his report deals with the question of obstruction of justice by President Trump, and Mueller again did not clear the president of wrongdoing. As set forth in the report, after that investigation, if we had had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so. We did not, however, make a determination as to whether the president did commit a crime. The introduction to the volume two of our report explains that decision. It explains that under long-standing department policy, A president cannot be charged with a federal crime while he is in office. That is unconstitutional. Even if the charge is kept under seal and hidden from public view, that too is prohibited. He continued to explain that the special counsel's office is part of the Department of Justice, is by regulation bound by department policy, and that charging the president was therefore not an option but he did leave the door open to possible action by the United States Congress. First, the opinion explicitly permits the investigation of a sitting president because it is important to preserve evidence while memories are fresh and documents available. Among other things, that evidence could be used if there were co-conspirators who could be charged now. And second, the opinion says that the Constitution requires a process other than the criminal justice system, to formally accuse a sitting president of wrongdoing. And beyond department policy, we were guided by principles of fairness. It would be unfair to potentially accuse somebody of a crime when there can be no court resolution of the actual charge. President Trump, who was clearly watching the statement on television, immediately tweeted afterwards that, quote, nothing changes from the Mueller report, there was insufficient evidence, and therefore in our country, a person is innocent, close quotes. Mueller also hinted that he was not keen to appear before congressional probes, whether publicly or otherwise. There has been discussion about an appearance before Congress. Any testimony from this office would not go beyond our report. It contains our findings and analysis and the reasons for the decisions we made. We chose those words carefully, and the work speaks for itself. And the report is my testimony. I would not provide information beyond that which is already public in any appearance before Congress. 
Countering the narrative from the president, Mueller said individuals who spent nearly two years working in his office served with the highest integrity. He also indicated that with the investigation concluded that the office would close and that he was resigning from the Justice Department to return to private life, as the battle over his report's findings continues to play itself out in the United States Congress. I'm Sherman Bryce Pease in New York. Some of Southern Africa's young researchers and activists will come together for a weekend of networking, skills development and knowledge sharing in pursuit of social justice. The meeting is convened by the Cannon Collins Trust at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. Since its beginnings out of the anti-apartheid work of the International Defense and Aid Fund, the Trust has treated education as its most powerful weapon of liberation and transformation. For more on this issue, here's Princess Sibanda from the Cannon Collins Trust. The Canon Collins Trust is an extension of the vision of Canon Collins, the man himself. He was an anti-apartheid activist. He felt deeply for the people of South Africa and Namibia when they were reeling under the apartheid regime. So he decided that he would chip in by providing legal and education support. So it's a UK-based charity that assisting mostly students from Southern Africa. Now we've extended to more than those two countries. Now the education and legal support is provided to other countries within Southern Africa. And so far this scholarship is supporting people from across like 10 countries in Southern Africa and over across different disciplines. Now each year the Trust brings together young academics across Southern Africa to network. Tell us more about this initiative and its objectives. So every year the Canon Collins Trust hosts what we call the Canon Collins Scholars Conference and this is the seventh time that we've held this conference. It's basically a hub where we bring together students from across the 10 countries that I've mentioned and the disciplines that I've mentioned. So they basically come together to this conference to have a deeper engagement with the work that the trust in itself is doing and the work that they're doing as individuals because all of the scholars are in one way or the other fighting for social justice. We come together to build on our work, confront our fears, promote networking. Now let's talk more about this year's meeting which takes place under the theme Voicing Resistance. Basically what we're doing, that's why I said we bring together these bright minds. So we are unpacking the idea of even voicing resistance. What does it mean to voice resistance? And how do we voice this resistance, particularly in Southern Africa, where most governments are kind of repressive and there's not much freedom of speech. So how do we voice resistance in such spaces? And so we've got a lot packed up. We've got sessions that talk about resisting patriarchy in institutions of violating. We also have multiple scholars who are engaging in social justice. I like that you touched on the issues that are dealt with. Can you just give us an idea of some of the burning issues that scholars will be deliberating on, perhaps topics that still need to be researched on? When you're doing social justice work, you engage communities, some of them that are not necessarily within the academia. So, for example, social justice, you're working with some marginalized communities. So we are also trying to find strategies of of voicing resistance or voicing resistance with the people that are marginalized. So we are also trying to find ways of how we can engage with the communities without making them or or pressing them further. There's also going to be talk around promoting positive mental health and well-being for scholars. We are also looking forward to having an interesting session on resisting patriarchy in higher education. 
Um, we've had a lot of cases, especially in Southern Africa, institutions of higher learning. Now, Princess, do you personally believe that education is the key to success? I mean, with the fourth industrial revolution being introduced. I am very much of the opinion that education is the key to success. So I'm a personal testimony to that. Growing up from a humble family where um, I lived in a community that in itself did not give me hope because I woke up to poverty around me. So the hope I got it in the book and I thought that if I stuck to the book and if I remained focused and determined, I would get somewhere with it. So in itself, it may not be the only key to success, but it helps you unlock a lot of things like prejudices or opens up your mind. And for our last question, what are the post-support programs put in place after this conference? The scholarship is one aspect of what the Canon Collins Trust does broadly. So there are always programs that are running a course. We have debates, we have sessions. They always come back to the schools that we are in. They host lunches with us and interact with us. So they have kind of like a followership program. But apart from that, even students or young people who are not on the scholarship, they get an opportunity to interact with Canon Collins. That's Princess Sibanda from the Canon Collins Trust on the line speaking to Nombui Selo Tango. In a bid to avert an imminent public outcry and unrest in Zimbabwe, on Tuesday the government intervened and reversed a second fuel price increase in a month. Prices for petrol and diesel were increased by 46% in the local RTGS dollar currency to $4.97 and $4.87 respectively, and on Tuesday this week another sharp increase of up to RTGS $7.97 and RTGS $7.88 were effected. This attracted panic and mayhem in major cities as commuters got stranded after transport fares were simultaneously increased but government sensed danger and reversed the price increase. We'll come back to that story after the headlines with Nosi Zuma. Local parties in South Africa have expressed mixed reactions to the executive announced by President Cyril Ramaphosa. The Sudanese Professionals Association and Umbrella Group that has been spearheading protests against the country's military council has condemned soldiers for their role in deadly clashes in Khartoum. And Angola's main opposition party, the former rebel movement UNITA, plans to go ahead with the funeral for its former leader, Jonas Savimbi. And Musa will, be, will give you a full bulletin at 9. It's 8.31 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. 
We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The 2019 edition of the Africa Health Exhibition and Congress wraps up today with a forum addressed by several health ministers from across the African continent along with business leaders. Together they will focus on the health challenges facing the continent. Thousands of delegates descended on Midrand, north of South Africa's north of Johannesburg in South Africa this week for what is dubbed one of the largest gatherings in the region. To discuss this further, we are joined on the line by Helen Mjali, Managing Director for Equipment Finance at the GE Healthcare. Helen, good morning and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, Lulu, and thank you very much for having me. Helen, what's the purpose and significance of the Africa Health Leaders Forum to a multinational company such as GE Health? From GE Healthcare's perspective, I think we've realized some of the challenges that we have in healthcare. I think the stats speak for themselves. We, as Africa, have 11% of the world's population, yet we have 24% of um, the global disease burden and only 1% of the expenditure. You know, there's challenges in terms of maternal, newborn, and child mortality. We have the rising burden of non-communicable diseases like cancer and obesity, and, you know, the rising healthcare costs and skills gaps. And so with all these challenges, this presents an opportunity for us to get together and really develop new healthcare systems and I think that's what the, the leadership forum really provides for us. To what extent has uh, GE Healthcare assisted with resolving the many healthcare challenges on the continent? So we've 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 really taken a, a stand and a lead in terms of developing new systems. As I mentioned, some of the examples are just in terms of primary healthcare. We've developed a number of programs, 18 programs in total, across uh, seven countries in Africa, South Africa, Kenya. Nigeria, Ghana, Ethiopia, and we're, here we've tried to really train healthcare workers, so really midwives, nurses, um, and other primary healthcare workers, and through this we've been able to impact 150,000 expectant mothers. Um, another example which we're, you know, we're very proud of is in terms of our partnership with the Ministry of Health in Kenya. And here we try to develop a new program that not only looks to just provide technology, but really adapts it to the local reality. So in Kenya, we refurbished and provided the modernization of infrastructure over 98 hospitals in the 47 counties in, in Kenya. We were able to provide training, which is often a very sort of key element um, in the healthcare space. We were able to provide service over a long period of time because what we found is people will provide technology, but the equipment doesn't work. So we were able to provide that. And the last and most important piece is around funding. So we're being able to provide sustainable funding over a long period of time. Um, another example, which we're really part of, is four training centers across Africa. So we have a training center, South Africa, Kenya, Egypt, Nigeria, which is really focused on training clinicians around the latest technologies. And, um, you know, another program which I'm quite proud of in South Africa as well is around the impact we've had in terms of midwives. So we've trained midwives in housing, and there we've had 7,500 expectant mothers providing, actually getting a scan or an ultrasound for the first time sometimes in their whole pregnancy. So these are all the initiatives that we've really put together. We were adapting um, our technologies and we're adapting our models in order to, to really meet some of Africa's challenges. Now, what are your views on the role of academia, clinicians, and the industry in response to healthcare challenges? 
I think what we've realized is instead of really working in, in silos, uh, whether it be academia or the public sector and the private sector, is we really need to get together in terms of trying to meet our goals. And, you know, when you look at, uh, you know, our models, they really involve all parties. It's NGOs coming together. It's academia in terms of the latest research. It's us as a private sector player and trying to really use innovation um, and, you know, what we've learned across the globe in, in really developing new solutions for Africa. So there is no one role, I would say, for any party. We really need to come together and, uh, and work together in terms of meeting our sustainable development goals. And, and, and that's what I think, you know, the Africa Health Congress and the Leadership Forum is here to do. How can we ensure that meetings such as these are not just talk shops, but uh, commitments and are made and plans are implemented? Yeah, I think that's often the challenge with regards to these these, these, con- these congresses as well. What happens thereafter is it just you know all talk, and really it's up to all of us in terms of making sure that we hold each other accountable in terms of the discussions that we have, and also just showing real results. I think from a GE perspective, we can show specific examples of what we've done, and I think we need to hold each other accountable. At the next Congress next year, I think we need to review and look back at what we've promised and what we said we want to do and, and see what progress we've made. Helen, thank you so much for joining us. We'll leave it there for now. Thank you very much, and thanks. Great stuff. That's Helen Mjali, Managing Director for Equipment Finance at the GE Healthcare in South Africa, joining us on the line. The South African National Blood Service is moving towards the use of drones to save lives. The SANBS has launched a drone program to deliver emergency blood to remote areas. This technology could revolutionize medical care in the country, which still battles with access to health care, especially in rural areas. Paul Makuban, Falters Report. Drones are mainly used for leisure or even photography. However, this technology could now save a life, CEO of the SANBS, Jonathan Lowe, explains. So the call to action, of course, was uh, just the incidence of postpartum hemorrhage in deeply rural areas. So we have, we have young ladies that have uncomplicated pregnancies that land up giving birth in a midwife obstetric unit and the incidence and prevalence of postpartum hemorrhage and in fact women that just die from not having enough blood is unacceptably high in South Africa and as the South African National Blood Service with the Department of Health we're really doing our best to address this issue. Blood is a fragile cell which needs to be transported sensitively. Lowe says these drones have been adapted to fly autonomously while not affecting the blood samples. This aircraft takes off Uh, like a helicopter, flies like a plane and lands like a helicopter. So we're able to go from one of our district blood banks 
to a midwife obstetric unit or a clinic um, very, very fast. The, the aircraft can fly at 180 kilometers an hour. It can fly for more than an hour, so the range is extremely long. It's highly efficient, so it's very, very cheap to, uh, to run. Literally, the cost of one flight is the cost of electricity, which is about 10 rand uh, per flight. And we're able to monitor the blood every inch of the way. The CEO of Quantum System, Florian Sable, says blood has to be at a specific temperature while it is transported, and therefore safety has to be a priority. We want to go further, faster, and take more blood. Uh, you have to watch the temperature, so uh, we actively watch it during the whole flight. We even uh, transmit it down to the ground. We actively cool it so it stays between 2 and 10 degrees, degrees so we can set that temperature um, while we fly it from A to B. And it's important that you don't uh, have, like, shocks. So it should be, uh, or it has to be a safe uh, and, and, and smooth takeoff and landing. While innovation and technology is always welcome, where does it leave humans and job creation? Sable explains. Um, of course, there will always be humans involved, um, but we try to, um, to make it as fast and cheap as possible also. Machines tend to make less mistakes than humans. So we have the plan to build these uh, things here in South Africa on a larger scale to create uh, economic the technology to South Africa, but uh, not so much on the flying that is done by a computer, but the maintenance, for example, requires, of course, uh, handwork. As the fourth industrial revolution gears up, drone pilot Lebohang Leboho says innovation like this will be at the forefront. Well, it, it will change the dynamics in a sense that patients will receive their products a lot quicker, especially in, in, in the golden hour where a patient is losing blood quite substantially. We need to embrace the fourth industrial revolution. Uh, it's here and it works. The SANBS says it wants to make emergency blood supplies available to all citizens of the country, including those in deep rural areas. Pearl Magwane, Johannesburg. The Automobile Association in South Africa, together with the Stop the Crash and the Global New Car Assessment Program, have released their findings on the safety of three vehicles. The organizations have tested 12 vehicles since 2017 and say the ratings have they have provided are to assist consumers in buying safer cars. Zolega Kodashe reports. The three organizations released the latest results showing the level of safety in three vehicles. The program is running for the third consecutive year in the country. According to a report tabled by the Road Traffic Management Corporation, close to 15,000 deaths were recorded on South Africa's roads in 2017. In 2018, the number of deaths recorded during the Easter period stood at 309. In an effort to curb this, the organizations have partnered up under the hashtag SaferCarsForAfrica. Technical Director for Global NCAP Alejandro Furas explains some ratings compared to those done last year. The Toyota Avanza, we uh, tested it uh, and the result was four stars for the adult occupants which are in the front uh, and uh, two stars for the child occupants which are in the rear. Last year we have published the Nissan MP300, the hard body, which was a car with uh, safety as two airbags, seat belts 
uh, but the structure was very unstable and it completely collapsed. The area where the passengers are there and the result was a zero star. Suzuki Ignis we found an unstable structure also, three stars for the adults and one star for the child occupant protection. President for NCAP David Ward elaborates on how the two systems are believed to save lives. Well, the most important is electronic stability control, and this is simply an anti-skid system that works with the braking system of the vehicle, and it detects when the car is starting to skid, like a backward slide, and it corrects the slide quicker than a driver can do it, and it can avoid something like maybe 30, uh, more than 30% of run-off-the-road crashes where you, the driver loses control, which is huge. It's probably the most important life-saving device since the seatbelt. The other one is called a tonsillomancy braking, and what it does is it uses sensors in the vehicle, so if you're distracted, you're not concentrating, and you're lo- likely to run into the back of another vehicle, it will do all the braking for you. Uh, literally, it takes over the braking function and to the maximum f- uh, ability of the vehicle. Spokesperson for the AA Leighton Beard says it is important for manufacturers and dealerships to develop a system where they inform potential customers for them to make informed choices. We would like consumers to make informed choices and to be aware of the safety rating of the vehicle that they're driving. And one of the things that we say is that vehicles need to have star-rated uh, stickers in their vehicles at the point of sale. And what do we mean by that? If you walk into a dealership floor to go buy a vehicle on that vehicle's window needs to be a sticker that says this car is rated three stars four stars or five stars or whatever the case is in that way we feel that the motorist or the person who's making that decision to buy will at that point of sale be aware of what the safety rating on that vehicle is the hope is to have deaths significantly decreased by 2030 with the use of these systems i am zolega kotashi in johannesburg Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lohoku. Good morning. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa says one of his administration's points of focus will be job creation and it is for this reason that he has established the Ministry of Employment and Labour. The ministry will be headed by Tulasin Nesi. South Africa's unemployment rate remains at above 27% and the youth are worst affected. The president announced a leaner executive with the number of ministers reduced from 36 to 28 
He also said he had given a number of young people opportunities in the executive. Half of the ministers are women, the first in South Africa. Ramaphosa says his administration's first priority is the welfare of all South Africans. All of us who will be on this executive of the sixth administration have been called upon to serve the people of our country and we intend to become servant leaders, serve our nation to the best of our ability and to ensure that we put our people first. South African Rail, Port and Pipeline Company, Transnet, has interdicted and expected a shutdown by the South African Transport and Allied Workers Union. Satel was due to down tools from this afternoon over a wage dispute with the Transnet National Port Authority. Satau alleges a salary discrepancy between black and white mariners, with white mariners being paid more even with less experience. Negotiations have collapsed, threatening a total shutdown of all eight ports along the country's coastline. Satau spokesperson Zanele Sabel. Transnet has interdicted the strike. So yesterday we had to urgently attend to court and what happened was the judge reserved the ruling until the 5th of September. So that effectively means the shutdown cannot go ahead today. The World Bank has approved a 78 million US dollar financing for the second phase of Lesotho's Lowlands Water Development Project, which will benefit 15,000 people. 115,000 rather. Part of the funding towards the project, the water project, is financed by the European Union through the European Investment Bank. Tracy Boomgaard reports. According to a statement... According to a statement by the bank, the grant which will be channeled through the bank's International Development Association will build on the work done under the first phase of the project. Phase 1 included the completion of the Metalong Dam and Water Supply Program, which provides water for domestic and industrial water requirements for the capital Masiru and surrounding settlements. The project aims to finance activities to improve access to reliable domestic and industrial water supply services in Maputswe and Klotse. Agricultural company Avagro is working on shifting traditional farming in Africa to precision agriculture through providing appropriate technology and training. The company implements customized concepts for agricultural production in challenging environmental conditions. The name of Agro is derived from the co-founder, Dr. Vikram Naik's healthcare group, Avacare. Kenya Airways finds itself at crossroads as the numbers continue falling, exacerbated by instability in management. The airline, which is the largest in East Africa and one of the biggest in terms of fleet numbers in Africa, has been posting substantial losses since 2012. The US dollar is trading at 358.35 Nigerian Naira, 10.69 Botswana Pula, 100 Kenyan shilling, and 313.39 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, one US dollar will cost you four Brazilian roll, 64.94 Russian ruble, 69.74 Indian rupee, 
1473 South African Rand, 79 pence British Pound, 89 cents Euro, Gold $1,277, Platinum $790 pals. The price of Brent crude oil is at $69.67 a barrel. Channel Africa, your favorite channel. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. First in our sports update, we begin with uh, cricket news. The South Africa's uh, cricket team will play the opening game of the ICC Cricket World Cup today against England at the Oval in London. The match starts at 11.30 Central African time. Ten teams are taking part in the World Cup this year and for the first time every team will play the other before the semi-finals in early July. South Africa is not amongst the favourites this time with many regarding the Proteas betting line up as too fragile. At yesterday's opening party skipper Fav Duplessis said they don't mind the underdog tag. It's a tremendous cricket team. They've showed that over the last 24 months, playing real good cricket. First game of this, uh, the campaign. Yeah, just for me, it's just excitement. You know, obviously, there's, England has been the favourite stake, um, so we're going to have to play some really good cricket. But for us, it's not just the first game. You know, it's a six-week period, and tomorrow is just the first step. This year, England, Australia and India are being talked about as the teams to beat. Unlike previous World Cups, South Africa go into the event as underdogs. But they do have the honour of opening the tournament today against home side England at the Oval. England captain Owen Morgan says they don't mind having the label. I think the, the tag is there for a reason. The uh, level of performance that we've produced, particularly at home over the last two years in particular, has probably lended us to being the favourites. Uh, that might change throughout the tournament. We'll more than likely come up against some difficult challenges and difficult games that we'll lose and have to come back from. But certainly going into the tournament, it sits fine with us. And South African athletes and the Olympic athlete, Casta Semenya, says she's lodged an appeal to the Swiss Supreme Court to challenge a decision over IAAF rules, forcing her to lower her testosterone levels. Semenya, a double Olympic and 100-meter champion, lost an appeal to the Court of Arbitration for Sport earlier this month. This was in relation to measures imposed by the IAAF that compel so-called hyperandrogenic athletes or those with differences of sexual development to lower their testosterone levels if they wish to compete as women. And the football news, uh, with only 23 days to go before the Africa Cup of Nations tournament in Egypt the next month kicks off, CAF President Ahmed Ahmed has expressed his excitement as he looks forward to the first AFCON tournament under his reign. There's been some security concerns in that country, Egypt. Just last week, there was a bomb blast near the Giza pyramids and 28 South African tourists who were traveling in by bus were affected. It was a second bomb blast in a space of two months, and Ahmed says they are engaging the Egyptian authorities on safety and security. You know, security now is a big problem in the world, not only in Egypt, not only in uh, South Africa, not only in uh, Madagascar, but in the world. And no country can be sure now that nothing happened. 
it's very very sad to feel like that but Egyptian government and CAF now the first time we implement the security committee they work they are going to continue to work together to make the maximum uh, of course to pray God to help us that uh, nothing happened about security during the competition that's a sport news this hour Africa rise and shine Africa zorza Africa amuka na unai Recapping our top stories in Africa rise and shine at the hour, South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa announces his cabinet for the sixth parliament and United States Special Counsel Robert Mueller confirms his report's main findings of Russian interference in the 2016 election. That wraps up Africa rise and shine today for myself, Lulu Gabu. Producer Lebo Munamukulu, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org and tweet us at Rise Shine Africa.